welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Everybody. This is Evelyn Harshkowitz, Reader Services Librarian at the Syosset Public Library's podcast, Turn the Page. And today we have with us Kerry Mayer. Her newest book is called All You Have to Do is Call. I loved it. It's so informative. Every woman should read it and every man should read it too, actually, not just women. Um, Kerry is a USA Today bestselling author of The Paris Bookseller, The Girl in White Gloves, The Kennedy Debutante, and under the name Kerry Majors, this is not a writing manual, notes for the young writer in the real world. She holds an MFA from Columbia University and lives with her daughter and dog in a leafy suburb west of Boston, Massachusetts. So, Carrie, thank you so much for being with us here today. Oh, gosh. Thanks for that introduction. and Thanks for having me. So I finished reading. All you have to do is call. I love the cover. I mean, I know this is only audio, but everybody could look it up. It's so 70s. <laughs> I love it too. It's really just a fantastic cover. I love the like gra- bold graphic font and the women. Uh-huh. Yeah, they're, they're very 70-ish. I, I really like it a lot. So why don't you tell everybody what this book is about? Okay, so th- this is a novel that is loosely based on the real life women of the Jane Collective, which was... Um, an underground women's health service in Chicago in the early 1970s. It's a departure from my uh, first three historical novels in one important way, which is that it's not biographical. So even though Jane, the Jane Collective was a real group of women, my characters are entirely fictional. Unlike say Sylvia Beach, who was the real life woman who opened Shakespeare and Company for In the Paris Bookseller. And so uh, the Jane Collective offered um, primarily safe, inexpensive abortions um, in Chicago in the early 1970s. They started as a referral service, and they ultimately took over the process to be an um, all-woman provider um, in, in the city. They also offered things like pap smears and birth control counseling and, um, STD testing. So they were, in some ways they were like a proto planned parenthood. My three characters are Veronica, who is the founder of my fictional Jane, her very old longtime friend, Patty, who has, does not know about Veronica's involvement with Jane. And, um, has is is very different from Veronica in some important ways. And then the third character, the third point of view character is Margaret, who is a young professor at the University of Chicago who secretly starts getting involved with Jane. Yes, and they're all very interesting characters. Thank what, you. What made you write about this cat this topic? And did you start this before they shot down Roe versus Wade? I mean, it's so relevant right now to what's going on. There's probably backdoor abortion clinics popping up now in certain states. Yeah. So this, yeah, this is one of the things about books that are bizarrely timely is that they didn't start out that way. Right. <laughs> 
Now, I got the idea for this book in, I like to call them the before times, before many things in 2018. Um, this was even before my first uh, historical novel, The Kennedy Debutant, has had come out. It was about to come out. And I heard this amazing NPR news story. Um, I was driving to meet a friend for a movie, listening to the radio, and they were talking about the women of the Jane Collective. And, you know, they relayed a lot of the facts that I had I just explained, right? They were, they started as this abortion referral service. They took over the process. And what really amazed me about them was that they were lay practitioners of abortion. Women just, I thought to myself, just like me. I couldn't believe it. Like I was listening to this news story going, what? They did what? <laughs> um, and you know, as soon as I parked the car, I fire up Amazon to see if anyone else has written a novel about them. And um they didn't no one seemed to have written a novel about them yet. And so I just knew in that moment that I had to do it. I just really wanted to write about them. And it was a journey from that moment to this one where the book is actually out. Um, I got the green light to write it in um after I was finishing with my uh drafting the Paris bookseller. And I got, and so I got the green light light in late 2020. So I started really writing this book in late 2020, early 2021. So when Dobbs happened in the summer of 2022, I was in revision mode for this book. Mm -hmm. So you were into it before. Yeah. And, and right now, like I said, it's just so relevant. It's, it's amazing. And I, I am fascinated by the fact that these women with no medical training, one felt comfortable enough to do this and two actually did it. I mean, I, I, I can't even like, I know not my thing at all. <laughs> so I can't even, like, I can imagine counseling the women and talking to the women about it, but actually performing the abortions is blows my mind. It Completely. honestly, it blows my mind also. And, you know, so, but it was, it wasn't like one day they woke up and decided that they wanted to do this, right? It was a slow, organic process. They, they, you know, it started with one woman calling a provider that she had heard was a safe provider in Chicago and getting and procuring an appointment for a friend. Okay. And then it grew, you know, these, these were very, the real life women, my book starts later in the history of Jane, where they're, where they've already, the women have already taken over the process. So the history I'm about to relay is really outside of the purview of the book, but this is what really happened in real life. They, you know, the, these were college girls. They were in feminist consciousness raising groups, which were essentially glorified coffee clutches full right. of women talking about their experiences of being women in the world and how they were going to change, change society and the position of women in society. And one of the things that would happen is that there were unwanted pregnancies. And so the names of providers would circulate uh, in these groups. And so the real life woman, Heather Booth, found herself, you know, giving out the names of specific providers over and over again. And slowly this group that became known as Jane formed. Their real name, their full name was the Abortion Referral Service of Women's Liberation. Yeah. <laughs> but they were they came to be known as Jane. And Jane, and so the women who got involved with Jane, there were women who drove women from the, you know, to the appointments. There were women um, who, you know, 
purchase supplies. There were there were people who got involved at all different kinds of levels of activism. And the inner circle slowly got more and more involved with the abortions, the, the DNCs, um, um, themselves. You know, they they held the hands of the women who were getting the abortions. And there was some slow beginning of assisting this one provider who became kind of their primary provider, who really did an amazing job. And it turned out he was not a doctor, <laughs> they discovered. And the light bulb sort of went on over their head. They were like, well, if he can do it, then so can we. <laughs> And he was willing to teach them. Unbelievable. What yeah. was your research like for this book? Well, so, you know, there are two terrific nonfiction books about Jane that I read. They're written, both written by women who were in, um, involved with Jane in the 70s, one by uh, Judith Arcana and one by um, Laura Kaplan. And I read also about the history of abortion in this country. Um, that was also very interesting to sort of see um you know, how the different states treated abortion before Roe um, and then at, and then even after. And then, you know, I also watched a couple of really terrific documentaries that helped me so much with the visuals of the time and the, the kind of vocabulary, the slang, um, the music. One, one in particular is called She's Beautiful When She's Angry, which is... Um, really about the the second wave feminist movement in general in the early 1970s but there was there was a great deal about um abortion rights and Jane in particular in that in that documentary so that was excellent another one that i watched that was very helpful to me was on apple tv it was called 1971 the year that music changed everything oh okay and so that was that was a multi-part series mm -hmm. and you know they they talked about television shows as well as music and um you know, fashion and all kinds of sort of social changes that were um, women in particular, but everyone were undergoing in this time period. Did you go into Chicago? To oh, yes. Thank you for reminding me of that. Mm -hmm. I also went to Chicago. Um, I had never been to Chicago. I've I was been there a few times. I love it there. It's a great it, city. It really, it's a great city. Yeah. I was mostly raised in California and I've lived most of my adult life on the East Coast. I live outside of Boston now. And so I, I've always wanted to go to Chicago, but just had never quite gotten there. So I stayed with a very good friend of mine, another um, historical novelist named Renee Rosen. Oh, sure. um, wrote, yeah, The Social Graces and among other books. And um, so she's a native Chicagoan. So she and some friends of hers showed me around the University of Chicago. Um, and that was really, that was that that was a research trip to really just soak up the city and see what it felt like, see what it looked like. And actually one of the things that I realized immediately was how enormous it is. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't really prepared for how huge it was. I mean, I lived in New York City and for several years in my twenties and Chicago still seemed really big to me. Um, so one of the first things I realized was, well, I definitely have to just pick a neighborhood and stick to it. <laughs> and, and I knew that I knew that that neighborhood was really going to be Hyde Park right outside of the University of Chicago campus, because, um, you know, Margaret is working at the University of Chicago and it, it made sense for a lot of reasons to set it in that part of the city. So that was where I kind of focused my, my walking tour of Chicago. Yeah, no, I mean, it seemed that all of the characters lived walking distance from where you set the place. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they also do some driving. Um, mm -hmm. you know, Chicago is a very driving oriented city, right. um, which, which was also different for me, you know, in New York, it's mm -hmm. not a big deal not to have a car at all, but it right. does like people in Chicago do drive a lot from place to place, even though there is public transportation, there is the L. Um, yeah. So it's sort of a mix. Um, and, you know, one of the other things I discovered going there, which wasn't at all surprising, Boston is very similar, is that native Chicagoans are very protective of their city. So I got a little bit nervous about writing about it as an outsider. <laughs> so I wound up giving a lot of my descriptions of Chicago to Margaret, who is the outsider character. Right. So, so she got it wrong. It was Right. Well, if she got it wrong, it was like it would make sense. But also she could look at it with the same kind of starry eyes that I was looking at mm -hmm. it. Um, you know, Veronica and Patty grow up near Chicago and live in Chicago now. So it would make sense, right, that people who are from there and live there would take a lot of things for granted. So they wouldn't necessarily be seeing it in quite the same ways. So that's that's how I handled that. And how long did it take you to write this book? So it took me a solid two years, I would say, maybe two plus years. Um, it's probably more like two and a half once you factor in all the, the copy editing and proof proofreading and all of those pieces um, from from early early uh, research stages all the way to when I have to fork it over and not make any more changes. And since you like each chapter was a different character, did you write? them in the order that the appears in the book or did you write each character and then piece it together yeah so uh, this is such a good question and i've i've listened to panels of writers who write these multiple point of view um novels and some writers do do what you just described which was take one character and write that story all the way from beginning to end take the next character write it all the way from beginning to end and then they figure out how to braid them together that would not have worked for me. <laughs> um, I wrote them essentially in the order in which we read them. And the cycle essentially is um, Veronica, Patty, Margaret, Veronica, Patty, Margaret. There's some deviation for that from that order when certain pieces of action really heat up about two thirds of the way through the book. Um, but yeah, so it was, this is a real challenge. I haven't written, I had never written a novel with three points of view before. Okay. Um, and so I, and I think this is a common, this is a common um, challenge in, in writing multiple point of view books. You know, I got, so, I would get so involved in my Margaret chapter and then I would have to go back to Veronica and be like, oh, where did I leave off with her? Mm. <laughs> and I would have to, I would have to go back and reread it. And very quickly I was back in it, but um, it, so writing it in the order in which they actually appear in the book for me helped me see the connections between what was happening in the in the chapters and if something was happening in a patty chapter there could then i could then more easily maybe echo certain themes in the next margaret chapter for instance cuz i knew she was going to follow right are you a planner did you have a outline or do you just Fly by the seat of your pants. Right. Pantser or plotter. Yeah. Um, I think I am inherently a pantser. Okay. Um, writing, you know, I wrote some novels that never got published before I wrote The Kennedy Debutante, which was my first published novel. And those were all pantser novels, but none of them were historical. So writing historical fiction really made me into more of a plotter. 
I've never though written a really detailed outline of any book that I've written. I just, that has never worked for me. I, I still, in my writing memoir that I wrote 10 years ago, I, I described the draft as like a joy, going for a joy ride with friends. Um, and I stand by that. Like I still really like to, to feel like I have a lot of freedom um, in what's going to happen in any individual chapter or set of chapters. So even when I wrote biographical fiction, when I knew I had to get a character from a, one specific real event to the next specific real event, what happened in between was really up to me. And how, how was I going to maneuver the character from one historical event to another historical event? Um, and so something similar happens. It happened in this book where I wasn't dealing with that many specific historical events. And in fact, the specific historical events really are happening in the background mm -hmm. of this book. Um, there was one milestone moment in the history of Jane that I did use, which is a bit of a spoiler. So I'm not going to mention it here, but I did. There was a way in which I wrote this book it happens toward the, this milestone moment kind of happens at the end of the book. Right. So I knew I was writing toward that in a right. lot of ways. And it took me a while to figure out how I was writing toward it in very, very early drafts. I thought it was more of a mystery, like almost like a whodunit. No one's, no one gets murdered, but like a, how do they wind up in this spot? Like, you know, and so, but that, that didn't work. Like that was a kind of um, square peg in a round hole um, mm -hmm. way of thinking about it for me. And so really ultimately it became a very character driven book about these women's journeys um, in, the, in their lives in their marriages to, you know, Patty mm -hmm. and Veronica are both in pretty long-term marriages. They both have children that they're raising. Veronica's pregnant with a second child um, at the, at the outside of the book. And, you know, she's, so she's essentially a working mother, right? Even though her work is illegal and in secret, um, she's essentially running a small business. Um, and so she has to figure, she's trying to figure that out. How is she going to do that? Um, and, you know, Margaret is, is starting her career as a tenure track professor, um, and getting involved with Jane. And she's also, trying to figure out how to balance a relationship with a career. She gets involved with the ex-husband of Siobhan and Siobhan is uh, Jane's co-founder with Veronica. Right. So there's a, in, like an element of sort of soap opera intrigue there. Right. Exactly. But I mean, you knew reading the book, you knew what was going to happen at the end. I mean, because you, yeah. if you know history, you yeah. know what was going to happen. Yes. But I didn't know what was going to happen with Veronica's pregnancy. Okay. You know, that was, that was up in the air and that went through her pregnancy went through many different versions, oh, Okay. <laughs> um, you know, in the, in this book and, and it had, I'll just leave it at that. It was, there okay. were, you know, you can imagine it. There's lots of ways a pregnancy can go for a lot of different reasons. And I experimented with a variety of them until I hit on the version that we explore in this book. Okay. You know, the same with her relationship with her husband, Doug, mm -hmm. who is, I don't think this is a spoiler. I mean, he's essentially a supportive guy. I mean, he's, he believes in what she's doing mm -hmm. and he's worried about his unborn child that they want, you know, this is a child that they, that they want, that they tried to have. Um, and he's worried and he's, and, and necessarily he's a man of his time. So, 
you know, all of those questions about how to write that relationship and how to write that character. Um, it took me some drafts to figure all that out. Mm-hmm. Not all the men are great. <laughs> not all the men are great. No, I said not all the men are great. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I'm, I'm oh, okay. I, sorry. <laughs> That's not all the men are great. Right. They're not all great, which is true <laughs> in this world that we live in. But your book got a lot of good quotes and everything. Other authors who said wonderful things about it. And Good Morning America said a powerful, thought-provoking novel, not only important and timely, but deeply, deeply humanizing. The Washington Post said it was remarkable. I don't know if you read your, do you read your reviews? I mean, I read, I read the major reviews. So okay. like Good Morning America and Kirkus and, and yeah. those are, those are, um, such an honor to get it all right um, right and to have them be so um enthusiastic was really re- really rewarding i w- the reviews i don't read are you know the many many amazon and goodreads reviews goodreads. okay and, well I, just I, you I know on goodreads, on goodreads you got a pretty good pretty good number going there so okay really, well fingers you crossed could take, you could take yeah. a look because it's okay. it's really pretty good you, you don't okay. have to worry anything about it but you had a lot of a lot of good authors blurbing about it, which is always so nice. It is nice. And, you know, I it's really amazing when an author whose books you really like likes your book. It's mm-hmm. like the highest compliment. Right. So you write historical fiction. What genres do you like to read? I do love historical fiction. And, you know, I love it for the reason everyone loves it, which is that I get swept up in a great story at the same time that I'm going to get to learn something. Um, You know, it's such a it's such a gentle, kind way of learning history, even even when the history itself is ugly. Um, You know, it's it's a it's just a nice way to learn. Um, I also really love contemporary fiction. Um, Mm -hmm. I I'm a very slow reader. Oh, okay. I wish I could read more. In fact, most of the reading I do with my eyes is for work. It's either research for a book I'm writing or I'm I'm blurbing. So a lot of the historical fiction I read is I'm blurbing it. Um, be on the lookout, by the way, everyone, especially if you like, all you have to do is call for Natasha Lester's next one, The Disappearance of Astrid Picard. Oh, I haven't um, heard of that yet. It's an amazing, it's coming out, I think here in, it just came out in Australia. She's Australian. Oh, okay. Um, coming out here in February, January or February. And it's the story of a fashion designer, a woman fashion designer. Well, it's three generations, but it, it really follows the 1970s fashion scene. It's extremely feminist, gorgeously written. I couldn't stop. I couldn't put it down anyway. So that was a little plug. Mm-hmm. Um, so but I also listen to a lot of audiobooks. So do I. I love your book, by the way, was very good in audio. Right? I do I, both. I, I listen, I like to listen and read. I like to get both experiences. The audiobook was great. I just want to let all of our patrons know it's available on Libby in both ebook and audiobook. And it it's an excellent, excellent audiobook. Yes, I yeah. So Lauren Allman is the reader for this book, and I requested her because she did such an amazing job with the Paris bookseller. So she wrote, she read the Paris bookseller, and she read this one, and she is just stupendously talented. I feel really lucky that I got her for this book too. Um, so so I listen to a lot of um uh, contemporary fiction on my Libro FM subscription. Um, I also love a good memoir. You know, I loved crying in H Mart. 
um, by Michelle Zauner. That was one of my favorite books of the last year or so. And she reads it herself. Not all memoirists read their own work, but right. um, she read she read hers and it was really terrific. I'm a huge fan of Stephen Rowley who wrote The Gunkel. And- right. Well, the Gunkel oh. was so great. Oh my God. What a fabulous book. The yeah. editor by him was also very good. Did you read yeah. that? Yeah. I haven't read that one. Um, well, I've read, actually, let's say I read parts of it. I haven't okay. read it from beginning to end. He does um, his own audio books. Yeah. So I'm not sure he did the editor. He did the Gunkel and the Cell. the Gunkel. And then a new yeah. one is coming out. Yeah. And then, yeah, right. Another Gunkel novel. Yeah, I can't it looks, it looks so great. Talk about great covers. I mean, that cover, like, was just the best. I know. Yeah, it was I know. really great. I, I really, we all here enjoyed the Gunkel. Yeah. We all thought it was a great book. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I try to read around, um, there's always writers that I haven't gotten to yet that I, I desperately want to, but I'm just, I haven't quite gotten there right now on my Libro FM. It's Ann Patchett's Tom Lake. Very good. Which is being read by Meryl Streep. So really, you know, how can you go wrong? <laughs> it was excellent. It was, I listened to it. It was absolutely excellent. She doesn't, how could she not do a fabulous job? I mean, right, right. it was, right. It was Fabulous. I, I really enjoyed that one also. So what are you working on now? You have another historical fiction book? I do. There's going to be a little bit of a wait for this one. It took me okay. a little while to figure out what I was going to write about next. And so I'm going even further in the direction away from biographical novels. And so, but it's still historical. Uh, well, it's going to be dual timeline. So the working title is Summer of Love. Oh. Um, and it's going to be a dual timeline novel set in the 1960s and the 2010s. And it's going to be about three generations of women in a family in California who own a winery set against in the 1960s against the backdrop of the San Francisco counterculture revolution of 1967, from which the Summer of Love gets its name. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Hate so, Ashbury. Very beginning of that one. A lot of hate Ashbury, that area, and exactly the hate Ashbury. And okay. so I, I grew up in California. So this is a yeah. this is a very and my parents are native Californians. So this is a an era of history I I feel like I grew up with. So I'm really mm-hmm. excited to write about it. That sounds great. That really does. So when do you think that'll be out? I think we're probably looking at 2026 for that one. Oh my! <laughs> I know. So, but you know, we have lots of things. We have the the paperback of the pair of uh, all you have to do is call. We'll be out, you know, in about a year. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a backlist, you know, Kennedy debutante, and you know, I think when you this is my fourth historical novel. So, right. as with every book, people discover you with the, the new book. But I've got three other novels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I've got Kathleen Kennedy and the Kennedy debutante and Grace Kelly in The Girl in White Gloves and The Paris Bookseller, Sylvia Beach. That's so great. So what do you do in your spare time? Well, I, well, this is not my spare time. My, my other, my other work is that I teach creative writing. Oh, you I do? do. Okay. Yeah, I teach at Emerson College. Here, here Very nice. Um, although actually mainly I teach in their all online um, popular fiction, Masters of Fine Arts in Fiction. Um, it's really great. They, they specialize wow. in like the major genres, like um, although historical fiction isn't one of them, but it's mystery, YA, fantasy, sci-fi. We, there are definitely some students writing historical fiction and they figure out how to find me. Okay. But it's a really cool program. It's, it's entirely um, on a, it's not Zoom. It's all happened asynchronously on this online program called Canvas. And so it's the discussions unfold over the course of a week 
in these discussion boards. If you've never been in one, the closest thing analogy is like a Facebook discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can, you know, respond to each other and pick up threads and 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 talk to each other directly that way, but in at their leisure. Very so nice. I really enjoy that. Um, but in my spare time, I've got a 13 year old daughter. Um, I'm, I'm divorced. And so, but I have her, um, half the time. And so, um, we do, we try, you know, I'm a chauffeur a lot of the time, you know, (laughs) tend to be, Um, but you know, it's fall here. So she's playing softball and we'll probably go apple picking and we love going to museums. We have a, we have a dog that we like to walk and take to dog parks and new, new locations. Um, we, we, we've had this dog for five years. His name, actually, I'm looking at him right now. He's down. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> Elena and I like to joke. What did we talk about before we had Bruce? Right. So, well, that's what you say to your, your spouse. What did we talk about before we had children? It's the same. My parents thing. have said the same thing. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, really. That's really pretty much what happens. Absolutely. Did you always want to be an author? I did. I wrote my first unfinished novel in fifth grade. And, you know, I, I experimented and toyed with some other things. I was very in, I took a lot of art history classes in college and I really enjoyed art history. And I really thought that I wanted to work in museums. Mm-hmm. And so when I moved to New York after graduating from UC Berkeley out in California, I really thought that I was going to work in museums. I had an internship lined up at the Guggenheim. My mm-hmm. parents though knew that I was quote, moving to New York to become a writer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and they were right. Um, even though I vehemently denied it as I got on the plane, um, you know, I, I did my internship and it was very interesting, but I realized the world of museums was not really for me. And so, um, at the end of that summer, I wound up getting a job at a little independent bookstore and nannying. I did each one part-time while I wrote my first novel. And that was the first right out of college. That was when I finished my first novel Mm -hmm. writing it. Um, and th- that novel didn't get published, but it did get me into graduate school. It got me into the Columbia Masters of Fine Arts program. Um, and and I was, you know, there. it took me a long time to publish a novel, but not a single word that I wrote in between those years was wasted. I, you know, everything, every, every book that I wrote and revised um, was teaching me something. Very nice. So we thank you so much for being with us here today. I want everybody to know that the book is available in our library. And like I said, it's available on Libby and I highly recommend it. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a a great story and a story that we all need to know about, especially in these times. Yes. So I'm going to close the chapter of Turn the Page with our author, Carrie Mayer. And we look forward to all your other books that you'll be writing and also your backlist that we really should all dive into and read. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you too, Carrie. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.